The world that we see through these platforms seems so real that it can be hard to remember that it's actually constructed. It's like a lot of little burdens sometimes and they seem silly, but they all add up to make a big obstacle for, um, for this kind of research. I had the luck of being able to speak to the interior minister and being able to speak to that senior manager, but many other researchers, they don't have that luxury. Hello, and welcome to the EPC podcast, where we delve deeper into EU affairs and connect the dots between politics, policies, and people. My name is Rebecca Kastermans, and I'm the head of communications at the European Policy Center. How can we hold giant internet platforms accountable? That was the central question of the year-long governing platforms project Algorithm Watch conducted together with the European Policy Center. Ahead of the European Commission's upcoming Digital Services Act, we released our final recommendations. Together with 46 other civil society organizations and academics, we called for binding transparency rules for online platforms that will allow civil society, academia, and journalists to gain access to the data collected by online platforms for research purposes. But why does data access matter? What makes it so difficult for journalists and researchers to get what they need? And what can policymakers do to demystify the algorithms that govern our online spaces? empower internet watchdogs, and take the decision-making on internet governance out of the boardroom. As more and more of our life is spent online, the boundaries between the off and online world are becoming increasingly blurred. We debate, shop, read the news, and now, during the pandemic, work, teach, learn, and even socialize almost exclusively via our screens. Big digital platforms such as Twitter, TikTok, Facebook, YouTube, and Google are reaping most of the rewards, amassing more and more of our data each day. And, as some fear, too much power. While the internet was once hailed as a radical free space for expression, a global agora for the new age, it is now increasingly a marketplace where people's attention span is the most precious commodity. The rapid spread of disinformation and the rise of echo chambers, extremism, and polarization online have seeped into reality and revealed the inherent risks in leaving the governance of the internet to a handful of private gatekeepers. The European Commission claims that its upcoming Digital Services Act is meant to correct this imbalance and set clear rules for digital platforms and the services they provide. Based on the findings of our year-long governing platforms project, Algorithm Watch and the EPC argue that an important part of holding these platforms accountable is to make sure that the new rules enable journalists and researchers to scrutinize the algorithms and black boxes that govern the content users are presented with on these platforms and to the data they collect. A healthy democracy depends, after all, on a strong and healthy public sphere and most importantly, a strong and healthy fourth estate. When they get the tools and means to challenge and scrutinize power, policymakers are kept in check, and the public can make more informed decisions. The stakes are high. If the Commission can get the Digital Services Act right, it could set the tone for Internet governance for decades to come, not just in the EU, but around the world. 
because uh, platforms, uh, they help us to find our way in the jungle of information that's out there uh, on the internet. And they rely on algorithms for them to do that in a quick and effective uh, way. You are hearing Margrethe Vestager, Executive Vice President of the European Commission. This is an excerpt from the keynote speech he gave at the event where the EPC and Algorithm Watch presented the findings of their governing platforms project. They use uh, recommender systems uh, to select the things that, uh, that are most relevant for us. The next video to watch, the next product to buy, the next opinion or bit of news uh, at the top of our social media feed. Here, she's talking about the algorithms that govern internet platforms, how they determine what your content feed looks like, and why that poses a danger to our democracy and even our grip on reality. Uh, They use content uh, moderation systems to track down and remove a harmful system from the platforms, uh, whether that content is illegal or just against the terms and uh, of service, Uh, that are designed uh, to stop discussions uh, descending uh, into abuse. Of course, they use also advertising algorithms to target ads exactly at the people that advertisers uh, want to reach. And algorithms like that, well, that's the secret of success in huge platforms. But they can also have a serious effect on the health of our democracy by influencing how we see the world around us. When recommender systems uh, choose which information to promote and what then also uh, to hide, they profoundly affect what we know uh, about the world. We naturally assume that the things that we see first, well, that they are the most important, uh, the most accurate news, uh, the most widely shared uh, opinions. And the things that are pushed lower down in our feeds or removed altogether by content uh, moderation systems, well, those things might just as well not exist. A lot of the time, it means that these systems are choosing which legitimate arguments and ideas that we see, uh, all without asking our permission or even telling us what they're doing. It's a bit like maybe uh, The Truman Show, the film where Jim Carrey Uh, lives in a world that he thinks is real, but which is really just a TV show. The world that we see through these platforms seems so real that it can be hard to remember that it's actually constructed. It is built up through the choices that algorithms uh, make about what we should see. But when the choices of what to show us are made by algorithms, It can be very difficult to understand how they made their decisions. And it can be a jungle to try to understand and judge whether they are giving us accurate uh, information about the world. Uh, Algorithm gives each and every one of us a different picture of the world. Uh, After all, uh, this extreme targeting is one of the great selling points of today's digital uh, technology. But it's also hard to compare notes. It's hard to check if, uh, if we're seeing the same picture as our fellow citizens, to check whether it's only we who actually, and our uh, social media providers, who actually knows what is going through our feet. So if a, if a recommender system draws some users down a, a rabbit hole of, of conspiracy theory, 
or violent uh, material, well, then part of the danger comes from the fact that the rest of us have no idea what is going on. Vice President Vestager is hinting here to the infamous echo chamber phenomenon. Contrary to the billboard down the street or the seven o'clock news, where everyone roughly gets the same curated pieces of information, the content on these platforms is tailored to your specific needs, interests, and desires, all with the aim of keeping you online as long as possible. What you see is you. That's what makes it so difficult for people to, as Vice President Vestager said, compare notes. And without easy access to the data these platforms collect, it is extremely difficult for journalists, researchers, and internet watchdogs, the people we count on to keep those in power in check, to understand why or how these algorithms promote, recommend, or moderate certain types of content, and what the implications are. To get a better sense of the different hurdles researchers have to overcome to get their hands on this type of data, Algorithm Watch launched the Left on Red campaign, named after the practice of not responding to someone after you've clearly read their message. They asked researchers to share their experiences. What you'll hear next are the stories of Tom Dauber and Rania Wazir, two of many researchers who responded to the campaign and gave their account. Uh, my name is uh, Tom Dauber. Um, I'm a uh, communication scientist, and that means that I study communication, communication effects uh, mainly. Uh, and I work as a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Amsterdam in the Netherlands. Tom's research focuses on micro-targeting. Micro-targeting is a marketing strategy that uses people's data about what they like, who they're connected to, what their demographics are, what they've purchased, and more, to segment them into small groups for specific content targeting. It's why when you look for an exotic holiday getaway during your lunch break, or used to anyway, you may be served an advertisement for plane tickets before dinner. If used in politics and campaigning, it can deliver information that's inaccurate or biased and is meant to sway your vote. Yeah, so my, my research focuses on political micro-targeting. Micro-targeting occurs a great deal on, on Facebook. And Facebook has an uh, ad library that uh, keeps all, uh, all the ads that political advertisers have bought and have placed uh, in people's timelines. And I wanted access to that API. API stands for Application Programming Interface. Simplified, an API is an intermediary that allows two different applications to speak to each other. Think of it as a menu in a restaurant. It gives you an overview and description of all the different dishes the restaurant prepares. You select from the menu, you pass your order, and a tasty-looking dish is delivered to your table a little while later. You don't exactly need to know how it gets made, you just care that it comes out of the kitchen the right way. But what does API have to do with researching data from social media? Essentially, access to the API allows you to sift through the immeasurable amount of data these platforms collect and only extract the data sets that you need. Because when I got access to that API, I wanted to, I could see uh, how many, uh, which political parties have sent which political ads to which kind of people. 
how many people saw that, uh, how old were they, where did they live, and that's very valuable information for my research. But to get that information, um, I needed to identify myself. I needed to validate my Facebook account with a passport or a driver's license. And that was uh, challenging. Um, I, I encountered many obstacles. Uh, well, actually, I encountered one obstacle, but I encountered that many times. And that's um, uploading uh, my uh, passport. The application procedure is pretty straightforward. You just take a picture of your ID, blocking out any sensitive information like a social security number, and you send it to Facebook for verification. But Tom's application failed multiple times. And just when he was about to get very frustrated, he had a stroke of luck. Coincidentally, I had a call with the Dutch uh, Interior minis minis uh, Ministry with uh, public servants who worked there, and they... I told them about my frustrations, and they said, well, try it again, and if you fail, tell us, then we'll contact Facebook, um, maybe to sort things out. So I did, well, of course, my passport failed again, mm -hmm. and I contacted the Interior Ministry to ask them to contact, to, uh, to plead my case at Facebook uh, on my behalf. And so they did very quickly, and then a, a senior manager uh, responded. Well, I have, I've spoken uh, to that senior manager a couple of times and he responded, um, well, Tom has my number, he has my email address, so he can call me or email me with his problems and he doesn't have to play it through you. The senior manager then advises Tom to cover the sensitive information with tape, which fails, and then with black paper, which fails again, and then... And finally he said, yeah, you covered it with paper or with tape, but you should cover it with your fingers, which I tried in the beginning for many, many times. So I thought, well, let's try it one more time. And if that doesn't work, uh, I'll, yeah, I don't know what, then I'll, maybe, I'll just quit. But then by miracle, uh, almost as if someone intervened, uh, they approved it. And that's my story. Hey, hi, uh, I'm Rania Wazir. I'm a, a mathematician turned data scientist. I work freelance um, and I'm also very actively involved in Vienna's uh, data science community uh, where I coordinate uh, an initiative called Data for Good. Data for Good helps NGOs, small startups and social entrepreneurs with data research, statistical analysis, national language processing, and social media monitoring. I do a lot of work with Amnesty International Italy. Uh, they have a project called Barometro um, dell'Odio, which means um, the hate barometer. Mm -hmm. And uh, they try to investigate uh, the level of hate speech uh, on the social media. When I started working with them, I uh, helped them get access to the Twitter API and to the Facebook API in order to um, directly collect posts and comments by public figures and uh, responses made by on the of public figures. And, and this was done in order to determine um, the tone of the uh, social media conversation and try to figure out whether certain kinds of Posts generated more interactions or not. 
Just like Tom, Rania's biggest problem was getting access to the Facebook API, and more specifically, to the APIs of public pages on Facebook. Until two years ago, getting that kind of access involved creating a page, signing up as a regular developer, and putting up an app to communicate with the APIs from public pages on Facebook. But that process became a lot more complicated with the implementation of GDPR, the EU's data privacy law, and following the Cambridge Analytica scandal. In case you needed a little reminder, Cambridge Analytica was the scandal whereby millions of Facebook users' personal data were downloaded and used by Cambridge Analytica without the individual's consent and predominantly for political advertising. Facebook responded by introducing an application process for these kind of requests to better protect the privacy of its users, as the company claimed. But it also made it much more difficult for researchers such as Rania to gain access to the data that they need. Their whole application process was designed for commercial uses. So if you go in as a researcher, um, the process is not designed for you and you get a lot of rejections. Um, inconsistent requests, and you basically just have to be stubborn for several months. Normally, a user app is something the user has it, they put it on their page, and, and it only interacts with the user's own data. But if you want uh, to be able to um, collect posts and comments by public figures, such as politicians, then what you want is the public pages API. But since those are public pages, uh, you can just directly access the comments and the posts that are being put on those public pages. And so there, there is an application procedure in order to get this permission. Um, this procedure is still, however, geared towards user apps. Um, so you are required to show how um, your API access will improve the user's experience. This, even though um, Facebook has a thing called server-to-server -server apps, which are not intended for users. So even though you apply and you say, I'm a server-to-server -server app and I'm doing research for you know, this kind of uh, hate speech monitoring or whatever, um, you get a lot of responses that are basically asking you, well, how does this improve the user experience? And show us what your user app is going to look like. This has slowly improved because they've had two years now to um, work on that, um, but hasn't significantly shortened the amount of time it takes to get an API access. Rania has also looked into Instagram and there she encountered a different kind of problem. Instagram does not have a public pages concept. So there is no way to get at publicly made comments by official figures unless you create a user app and that public figure agrees to install your user app. Just if you, if you want programming access uh, in order to download comments that are made on these, they are still public pages because anybody can view them, mm -hmm. uh, cannot do that. There, there is no concept of public page for the API. Rania also told me that a lot depends on in what capacity you make the request to gain access to the data. I did all of these requesting as a civil society organization. 
you know, I helped Amnesty Italy request. Um, and on the other hand, I helped um, Wahlbeobachtung.org, which is the Austrian election watch. So when you do it through, uh, when you're um, helping an organization like Amnesty do this, Amnesty has to prove they're a real organization and then they have to sign certain documents. If you do it as a person, then you have to verify yourself as a person. Yeah. That does make a difference in, in what you have to do in order to verify. Um, listen, can I tell you one one other thing which is hard for NGOs to handle when 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 you're um, dealing with these things? Um, and this is that uh, the, the Facebook API really limits the amount of data you can download. And, and the amount of data you can download depends on how many users your app has. So this goes back to the whole story that even though you're allowed to have server-to-server -server apps, their whole system is, is designed for user apps. Um, and so basically, as an NGO, you have to invent ways to sort of have pretend users or just increase the number of users of your app in order to be able to download an amount of data that 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 is sufficient for your research and and this this ends up being a big problem yeah because it all goes back to the idea your app needs to improve the experience of users so right. there's always this kind of um company logic behind it as in right. thinking about customers instead of thinking about well our primary objective of ngos is not customers it's research it's advocacy and right and the thing is um how do you get 20 users how do you get 50 users because that's what you need in order to get a um you know reasonable amount of data uh this requires a lot of work because the users have to be daily users you have to make sure these people are using or accessing your app every single day while you're trying to download the data. It's like a lot of little burdens sometimes, and they seem silly, but they all add up to make a big obstacle for, um, for this kind of research. Rania and Tom did eventually manage to get the data that they needed. But before I left them, I asked if there was one thing regulators and policymakers could do that would make their life as data researchers easier. Well, the only thing I can think about is some a scientific uh, liaison, some person that you can contact to when you run into difficulties, like these, these stupid things that, that you, you can't solve on your own. Hmm. Because I had the luck of being able to speak to the interior minister and being able to speak to that senior manager. But many other researchers, they don't have that luxury, I suppose. Well, on the one hand, uh, I do want to protect people's privacy. Um, but on the other hand, I feel like public figures, especially you know politicians who will make public statements and are using the platforms to do so, uh, should, should be under public scrutiny. And I should not have to run through lots of loopholes in order to make that scrutiny. I, I think actually a discussion needs to be had. How do you guarantee access to your watchdog organizations? Should that, should that gatekeeper function really be performed by um, private companies or should that be done through another avenue? It is currently 
inhibitively difficult and the kind of expertise that you need in order to do this is a mix of uh, legal, um, technical, and basically just stubbornness that is really hard to maintain. It is vital that people like Rania and Tom are no longer dependent on the goodwill of private companies to get access to data that could be of public interest. But will the upcoming Digital Services Act be able to fix this situation? We cannot just leave decisions uh, which affect the future of our uh, democracy to be made in secrecy in a few uh, corporate uh, boardrooms. And that is why one of the main goals of the Digital Services Act will be to protect our democracy uh, by making sure that platforms are transparent about how these algorithms work and make those platforms more accountable for the decisions that they make. So the proposal that we're working on would mean that platforms would have to tell users how their recommender systems decide what content to show so that it's easier for us to judge uh, whether to trust the picture of the world they give us or not. Those platforms would have to provide uh, regular reports on the content uh, moderations tools they use, the accuracy, the results of, of those tools. And they'd have to give us better information about the ads that we're seeing, uh, explaining, for example, who placed a certain ad and why it has been targeted uh, at us. And that gives us a much better idea about who is trying to influence us. Uh, the Digital Services Act uh, will also make sure that regulators get the information they need uh, to understand and govern uh, the way that algorithms uh, work. And researchers, uh, too, uh, need to have access uh, to data that allows us to understand how those algorithms are affecting our society. We've seen the impact of the choices that they have uh, made. And we have seen that it's not always obvious until you get to dig down in the data and fully understand uh, what is going on. And since those choices, well, they affect all of us directly or indirectly, that sort of uh, knowledge cannot be a sort of esoteric piece of information that only a small sort of priesthood that works at big platforms gets to see. So the rules that we're preparing, uh, they would give all service providers a uh, duty to cooperate uh, with regulators. And the biggest platforms would have to provide more information about how their algorithms actually uh, work. And they'd also have to give regulators and researchers access to the data that they hold, uh, including ad archives. With the Digital Services Act coming out next week, we'll find out soon enough what the actual new rules will look like and whether the EU can live up to the expectations of establishing a golden standard for internet governance. For people like Tom and Rania, there have been some positive signals in the recent European Democracy Action Plan. It clearly states that GDPR isn't a barrier to public interest research on platform data. And the European Digital Media Observatory will develop a code of practice on access to data for research purposes. But will that be enough? Look, looking at the world, there, there, is, there are, I think, two things at stake here. Because more and more people realize, I think, that we do not have an offline world and an online world. We have a world. 
which is why there is a kind of, of struggle about then when when the digital world becomes imperialistic of our offline world, when how how should governance then work? Because what we are trying to do with the, the Digital Services Act, the Digital Markets Act, and the AI framework is indeed to say offline and online, this is the same value system. This is the same world. And, and we want to have the same strong um, uh, rights, uh, empowerment, transparency in the entire world. And this is why what we're doing here is so inspired by the democracy that we have already, by our values of transparency, of accountability, of responsibility that we have already. And I think that is the real fight. That is when to take the legal consequences of the fact that we have one world. And this is a fight for a liberal democracy. Uh, we just have changed the battleground as from what it was a uh, hundred years ago uh, when when women uh, were allowed in or a thousand or a couple of thousand years ago uh, when it was also uh, men and free men uh, only. So, so this is a democratic battle for a liberal democracy where it is still so that the individual, the respects of the individual, the, the worthiness of the individual, the integrity, that is the starting point. Thank you to the Governing Platforms Project teams at Algorithm Watch and the European Policy Centre. The Governing Platforms Project was made possible by academic input from the Mainz Media Institute and the University of Amsterdam. A special shout out to Rania and Tom for sharing their stories with me. If you're interested in knowing more about the Governing Platforms Project and our final recommendations, go to algorithmwatch.org or www.epc.eu. Tune in next time. Until then, over and out.